Welcome to another episode of Studies in Empathy, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring empathy and patient experience. I'm your host, Steph Fair, Senior Director of the Office of Patient Experience here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm very pleased to have with me today, Jackie Robertson. Jackie, welcome to Studies in Empathy. Thank you, Stephanie. Glad to be here. Well, so glad you're here. Jackie's the Chief of Diversity and Inclusion at the Cleveland Clinic. In her role, she leads efforts to develop an enterprise-wide diversity and inclusion, or DNI strategy, embrace and leverage diversity across all levels of the organization, and integrate DNI approaches into all aspects of work and culture at Cleveland Clinic. Jackie has nearly 20 years of national and international experience in leading DNI strategies and has served on several boards, including I4CP, the Chicago Sinfonietta, and the National Conference for Community and Justice. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Behavioral Science in the University of Chicago and is a Six Sigma Executive Greenbelt. We're really excited to have you here today. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm really delighted to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be the Chief of Diversity and Inclusion here at the Cleveland Clinic? Absolutely. So most of my experience and background has been in financial services. In fact, that's been my entire career. So I guess you could say I hung up my shingles to make rich people richer, to come to make uh, people well, or at least align with that value proposition. Um, Originally from Chicago, as I mentioned, and lived abroad for several years in the Netherlands where I raised my two sons, worked for an organization called ING, Financial Services. And that's really where I cut my teeth on inclusion. How I came to be here is an interesting story. I got a call from a recruiter asking me if I was interested. And I really love financial services. I was not interested. And I remember my husband saying, don't ever turn down a conversation. And so I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a me thing. I don't know if it's a female thing. I don't want to make a broad speculation, but there's something to be said about loyalty. And I didn't want to leave. But Cleveland Clinic had me at hello. Um, Love the people that I interviewed with. Absolutely fell in love with the value proposition. Um, Healthcare is a tangible. Financial services is not always a tangible. What we sell is a promise. And in Cleveland Clinic and in healthcare, you can see the difference that you make and the impact you make on people every day. Well, that's amazing. And I love that philosophy of never say no to a conversation. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to steal that from you. Um, as we get into this, I, I did ask you before we started about the diversity and inclusion titling and why we use DNI. And there's lots of ways in the industry that we talk about it with DEI and other terms. You gave me a great explanation. Can we kind of repeat that on air now and, and help me understand why DNI isn't maybe as important as other language? Yeah, so a few things about diversity and inclusion. Um, some people look at them as buzzwords in the industry. And I guess you could say they could be, but not at Cleveland Clinic. If your values are aligned to inclusion, the expectation is that you live those values each and every day. And so I guess you could say it's buzzwords, but if you're actually living that out, if you're living out the value of diversity, if you're living out the value of inclusion, I think those are no longer buzzwords. They're actually aligned with um, 
our productivity. They are aligned with the impact that we have on patients and our caregivers and our community each and every day. You know, I thought about the title of the, the role when I came in, and the title of the role is diversity and inclusion. Yet we focus on equity. We focus on belonging. And someone asked, you know, well, gee, are you going to change the title? And it's like, we've got too much work to do rather than change the title. Let's make sure we are focused on equity as part of executing our strategy. Let's make sure we're focused on belonging as part of executing our strategy. And so sometimes I, I think it's not so much what you call the role, it's what you're doing to create impact on our patients and our caregivers and our community each and every day. You did mention our value here at the Cleveland Clinic, and inclusion is one of our core values. Can you talk about why inclusion is so important and how individual caregivers have an opportunity to embody and integrate inclusion into their own actions? Yeah. So having a healthy culture, I think, is the foundation of everything we do. And diversity efforts in any organization are not sustainable unless you have a healthy culture, unless you have a culture based on living out the values of inclusion and diversity. We can implement all the diversity programs in the world, but unless the culture where we live every day, where our caregivers feel that they can bring their best every day, they can be themselves every day, they're not going to produce to their full capability. They're not going to give necessarily 110% every day unless they feel they belong, unless they feel that their contributions matter. And I think that's why we have such an important role as leaders to make sure that we're creating an environment where people feel they can speak up, they can feel their voices are going to be heard, they can feel that they actually have an impact. They actually see themselves in this strategy of, of diversity and inclusion. I love how you say make room for people to bring their whole self and, and to be their whole self so they can do their job well. I, this isn't, as we were talking beforehand and, and preparing, this isn't something we talked about, but it's something you and I work together on to make it safe for our caregivers and our patients to bring their whole self. We've got to make sure that we can call out behaviors and, and that we say this is not okay when it doesn't reflect a safe culture. And one of the things that um, we've done here, and I know there's more going on, but I think that it's really innovative, is that in patient experience, we actually do look to say that our patients are not allowed to abuse and, and to um, not create a safe space as well. And that we, we call that out. We make sure that our caregivers feel safe in all ways. And if that behavior happens, we take action and we have consequences for that, just as we absolutely protect our patients. Um, but I just wanted to call it out because I think this is a space that we've been looking at where we have some more opportunity and where we can keep doing things. And that's just an example of where patient experience can help you as you're driving towards this atmosphere and this culture. Absolutely. What's the relationship between inclusion and empathy? I think they are absolutely related. When I think of inclusion, I think of the more holistic approach. When I think of empathy, um, I think of, let's look at empathic versus sympathy. And so an empathic individual or an empathic leader is going to say, I'm in it with you. I feel it with you. Um, being sympathetic is more of, I feel for you. I feel sorry for you. 
there's a difference. And so when you think about um, being an empathic leader, that is really core to being an inclusive leader and leading with that, that approach. When I think of people who are inclusive, I think of their commitment to develop others. I think of um, their, their desire to get people to work at their full potential, to have the courage to give them transparent feedback, constructive feedback when they're not. You know, <laughs> it's interesting because there are many times in my career where I felt that white males may have been pushed back on their heels because they didn't feel comfortable necessarily giving women feedback. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily feel comfortable giving um, women of color feedback. And in, I don't think it came from a place of malintent. Mm-hmm. I think it came from, and still to some degree comes from, not feeling comfortable um, when you don't know the right words, when you don't know what to say. And I think that's why another aspect of leadership, which is cultural humility, comes into place. You don't necessarily have all the right words, but being transparent about the fact that you don't have those and still engaging in a conversation anyway is something that all of our leaders will need if they want to be inclusive. I think it's the intentionality behind it as well. One of the core things is when you think about just being cognizant of the biases we bring as inclusive leaders. We all have biases. Good people have biases. And I think being aware of those helps you understand the intentionality that you need to have to to close that gap when you are dealing with difference, when you are managing difference. When I say difference, it can mean anything. It can just mean difference in style, difference in background. Your, your willingness and your intentionality and your curiosity about that difference and those differences to be able to engage in a conversation and close the gap. That's why it's so important for people to understand another story, understand their values, understand their beliefs, right? It's interesting the dynamic that happens when you understand someone, when you understand where they came from, when you understand what's important to them. It allows you to have those conversations, which brings you full circle back to development. You know, you can certainly use a rubric to develop another person, but I think to fully develop someone is going to require trust, that mutual trust. And if you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult to get someone to their full potential, to give them constructive feedback when they need it so that they're working to their full potential and so that they can speak up. And so why is that important? I mean, we care for patients each and every day and we have a team of teams approach. And so, you know, I I don't even want to imagine what happens if, you know, caregivers who are patient facing don't feel like they can share their perspectives. An inclusive leader is going to go out of his or her way to gain those different perspectives. So empathy, yes, you're feeling it with them, you're listening to those, that that inclusive piece, you're pulling all of those perspectives together and you're making sense of them and you're valuing each one of them and, and you're leveraging that between and among those people who are giving those different perspectives. Some people might call that politics. I don't. 
I call that really being able to read a room. I call that being able to understand the importance and the value and not just what people say, but sometimes what they don't say and being able to pick up on that. So there's so many things I think that go into inclusion and empathy. Full circle, I think inclusion is really the holistic approach. Empathy is bringing that approach together in clear behaviors around making sure that you are valuing the different perspectives that people bring and how you do that. That's a great answer and so much in there to unpack. It, it's meaty. Um, and what I, I did pick up that I thought, oh, I'm going to steal this and again. Lots of good notes for me to take home with me um, is how being curious even if you don't know the right thing to say next is so important and empathy can always lead us through that. And you're right to say that if we're not curious and, and creating space for people that there's no way we're going to get to the inclusion, the holistic approach. I, I love that advice. Yeah. It's um, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I didn't mention in that is the ability to be vulnerable, I think goes hand in hand with transparency. It goes hand in hand with, empathy. Um, It's okay to not know. It's okay to be um, vulnerable and say, you know, listen, I know the vision that we're aspiring to get to, but I really need your thinking and your advice and your guidance on how we might get there and really engaging your team and your peers and um, leaders in order to get there. I think one of my least favorite phrases when I think about transparency is sometimes people will say, I don't disagree with you. And when I think about that, it's interesting to know what to make of that. And I think that's where courage comes in. You agree, you don't agree, have the courage to start there and then have a dialogue. Um, I was with a consultant once who used that language all the time. Well, I don't disagree with you. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. So again, you know, and I know I probably digress, but that whole willingness to be vulnerable and, you know, in cultures where it is so important to be right and to get it right, right? Especially when you're dealing with patients and their safety every day, I think we have to make space for that vulnerability. And clearly our physicians do that. Clearly our leaders do that each and every day. They have to. But I wanted to mention it because I think it's just such an important value. It really is. And I know that as I've matured in leadership, vulnerability is a something I can lean into with more confidence and I can show it to my team a lot easier than I did as a new leader because we think that leaders have to have all the answers and you can't show that vulnerability. And I think you made a great point and actually that's how we connect and that's how you bring people in with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about measures we're taking here at the Cleveland Clinic uh, to strengthen diversity in our workforce? Yeah, absolutely. And so, first of all, metrics are so important. And the the ability to be able to track um, the progress that we are making as we go along this journey is key. And one of the things that we're looking at is when you look at the, the, the life cycle of an employee from recruitment to when they come in, onboarding, um, development, retention, we are putting metrics behind each one of those, but we're also putting processes in place. And it's all part of a larger partnership with diversity and inclusion, with talent acquisition, making sure that every slate that we have is a diverse slate, making sure that we are intentional about 
onboarding someone and really focused on the experience that they have in the first 90 days here. And why is that important? Because research shows us that that first 90 days, if, if people aren't feeling that stickiness to this culture and to this organization, the risk that they might leave is higher. Mm. And so embedding diversity and inclusion in all of our processes and all of our practices. And so instead of having you know, a specific diversity leadership program, why not embed diversity and inclusion concepts and context into the existing leadership programs that we have already? I don't believe that diversity and inclusion should ever be a standalone um, strategy. It has to be embedded in everything that we do. And so that's our processes. That's our metrics. Um, One of the things that we are focused on is making sure that we not just have diverse leadership in the higher levels of the organization. And we know that's important. McKinsey tells us, research tells us the business case for having diversity in leadership. So not only are we focused on doing that, we're focused on reducing turnover of diverse talent and and leadership. We looked at the data and the data shows us that diverse talent leaves more often, more frequently at a faster rate than their counterparts, than their peers. And so we really are trying this year to get up under that. We looked at exit interviews, for example, and the exit interviews had some good data, but it made you question whether or not that data is accurate. Think about it. When, when people leave an organization, are they always going to tell you the real reasons they left, or are they more concerned about burning a bridge as they go to that next job right. opportunity? And I think that's something that we have to take note of. So one of the things we'd like to do is create an initiative around diverse focus groups to really understand what would compel you to stay, what would compel you to leave. And I think if we can get ahead of that and find out what that reason or those reasons might be before someone leaves, we can put measures in place to ensure that we retain talent. Stay interviews is an opportunity that I think we should explore more. It only takes a few minutes. And instead of waiting until someone exits and asking them why they exited, let's have managers and leaders more frequently check in with their folks and find out, how are you doing? What can I be doing differently to support you? There was a CEO that I used to work for. He did a stay interview on me in an elevator. I'll never forget, we're on the 36th floor. We went down to the first floor and it, It wasn't a long conversation, but it wasn't until I got home that evening, I realized I'll be doggone. He did a stay interview on me and it worked. And I ended up staying another five years. So I think that's going to be important as, as we move forward, trying to get up under why is diverse talent leaving? And by the way, our data shows us it's not just diverse talent in the leadership levels. It's throughout any and every function role in the organization, diverse talent leaves faster. I used to be in sales earlier in my career, and I was taught very early on that it is cheaper to keep an existing customer than it is to go out and get a new one. And I think of talent in the same way. Mm -hmm. We invest a lot to source talent, to get them in the door, and then to not be able to, to keep that talent and retain that talent, I would say, is a disappointment at least. So when you think about the diverse focus groups that we want to do, when you think about you know, maybe we make some changes to the exit interview process, definitely enhance um, processes around stay interviews. Those initiatives are born out of what data told us. 
And that's what I mean by we will never embark on an initiative that is not deeply rooted in data and insights, because otherwise you can't track it. You can't measure it. And at the end of the year, I don't ever want to be asked by my boss or any of my senior leaders, what have you accomplished? And help me understand the impact that it's had. I don't ever want to not have an answer to that question. That's a good North Star, isn't it? To, to know where your work makes a difference. And I also love the point of embedding or integrating the work into existing work, um, because that's how you know it sticks. And that stickiness is so necessary for all the reasons you just said. Absolutely. And, you know, we think about that stickiness, you know, again, it's not so much the initiatives. Yeah, the initiatives are driven from data, but it comes back to culture. Yeah. And so one of the, the things that we've done around belonging, we last year we added three questions to the Caregiver Pulse Survey. So the question that we used to have, uh, which was a consistent question, is I feel like I belong at Cleveland Clinic. Great question. But think about what goes through your head when you're asked that. And I remember thinking to myself, well, in order to answer that question fully, I think about how do I feel about being on this team? How do I feel about whether or not and to the extent to which my manager makes me feel like I belong? And then from an accountability standpoint, how am I influencing another's sense of belonging? And so when you think about everything that possibly goes through someone's head when they're trying to answer that question, We decided as a team, let's get more granular. Mm. And so we added three questions to that belonging survey. And the, the now the four questions are, I feel like I belong at Cleveland Clinic. My manager makes me feel like I belong. I feel like I belong on the team. And I feel like I can contribute to the belonging of others. That gets at a level of granularity that helps us to be more granular in the analysis of that survey. And it was very helpful. And our belongings uh, scores were very high. I'm, I'm pleased to say that. But, you know, you can't just rest on your laurels, as they say, and think, okay, those are great scores. You have to continue to, to keep your finger on the pulse of this organization's culture. What's going well? What can we do better? What can we do differently? How do we check in with our caregivers to understand how they're feeling, how they're feeling about their ability to speak up and make a difference? Right? So all of them are, I think, intricately connected. Very much. Uh, Jackie, I hear you're rebranding one of the pillars of cultural competence to cultural humility. Can you talk about what that means and why? Sure. Absolutely. That's a great question. Cultural competence gives the, the, the impression that we are done. We are competent. We are fixed. We know this work like the back of our hand, and there is nothing more for us to do. Cultural humility denotes that we are still on a journey, and we might not always get it right. We may fail, but we're going to get up and we're going to try again. We might not use the right words in engaging in a conversation with someone whose style is different than our own, but it's okay. We might fail, but we're going to get back up and we're going to try it again. Cultural humility denotes the intentionality to understand someone's story, to understand their values, their experiences, although very different from your own, um, and, and use those in the understanding of that story to create a more effective relationship, to create a trust in that relationship. So that's the reason why we're, and it's more than just rebranding it. It's making sure that any training that we do is focused on helping us to become more culturally humble than 
a focus on, okay, we're done and we don't have any other work to do. And I think one of the things that will help that is an inventory that we're using called the IDI, and it's the Intercultural Development Inventory. It's a baseline. It's a very simple test that you take, a self-test, to understand where you are on that, that continuum, if you will, of cultural humility. Because how can you begin to develop someone else if you don't really know how others are perceiving you? And there are other psychological tests like the Hogan, or you can do the 360, and that is certainly going to give you, both of those will give you tremendous insight about yourself. But one of the things we want to do is add a baseline for culture and around culture and where you are on that continuum, because that's going to give you insight to really focus on not just getting to know someone else, but knowing yourself and knowing what you need to bring to the equation to close that gap between someone whose style or background might be different than your own. So that's, that's the reason for a focus on cultural humility versus cultural competence. That's great. And it goes back to speaking to what we talked about earlier about vulnerability. Yes. It, it makes a room for that vulnerability and that curiosity. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a patient experience podcast. So let's let's switch a little bit and talk about how diversity in a caregiver workforce can impact our patients. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start by, by saying that um, when you think about when you think about diversity in the workforce, think about the bias that exists for all of us, that we tend to like people who are like ourselves. Mm. We tend to gravitate towards people who are like us, people who think like us, right? That's a similarity bias. It exists and it's real. And if you don't believe me, look at your LinkedIn profile. 85% of the folks on your profile in your network probably look like you. So think about that for a minute as a backdrop. If we like people who are like ourselves, who think like us, there's probably going to be an element of trust there. Now, think about the relationship between a patient and a patient-facing caregiver. You cannot avoid that bias of wanting to trust the person who is giving you that care and, and more often than not, we feel a deeper connection to people who we feel are like us. And somehow we feel like they have our best interest at heart. Now, not in all cases, but just recognize that there is a bias there. And so I can imagine that patients want to look up and see people who are like themselves um, because it does engender a certain level of trust. And so when I think about that in terms of the patient experience, I think about, you know, do we have enough diversity in our physicians, in our nurses, in the staff? And I think that's something that we absolutely need to be intentional about as we do succession planning, as we, um, you know, look to create a pipeline for diverse talent coming into healthcare and learning the healthcare business, if you will, so that they can have that impact on patients. So, you know, I only mentioned the, the similarity bias as a backdrop because, you know, it's real. And it's not to say that you don't trust someone or a doctor or a nurse who's not like you. Absolutely, I'm not saying that. 
But I think there is something to say for that similarity bias and looking for and trusting people who we feel look like us, think like us, believe like us. If that wasn't the case, then America would not be as divided as it is today. But that's an interesting point, too, because I think there's, especially in some traditionally underserved communities, um, there, there's been some good reasons why people don't trust health care. We think historically. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, you know, Henrietta Lacks' yep. story. You think about the Tuskegee experiments. Um, you know, I just read not too long ago that some of the, the instruments that are used in surgery are still named after um, a surgeon, and I refuse to call his name, but um, named after a surgeon who experimented on black women um, without any um, anesthesia, without, you know, anything to to help them with the, the pain of those particular experiments. So you can absolutely understand why the trust is not there, but it's certainly something that we are trying to rebuild with the community. I think we've made great strides there. And when you look at the efforts that we've made around infant mortality and maternal health um, and lead abatement, and you know, that continues. And that's one of the things I love about Cleveland Clinic. It's not just about giving money to things, it's about fully investing in the research that we're doing and um, making sure that these efforts have an impact. It's, you know, making sure that, you know, people's homes um, are free of lead, so you don't have to worry about the negative impacts that it has on the people who inhabit those homes. Um, maternal health is real. You know, I mean, you look at, you know, what has happened in many instances with women, and especially women of color, who feel that they are not listened to when they go to a physician. Um, Serena Williams is one of those individuals um, who was very clear about some of the, the medical issues that she had. She tried to get her doctors to listen, and even someone of her socioeconomic background was not successful in you know, getting her doctors to listen. And that's scary if you think about it, because some people might look at this as a problem of, well, you know, it's, it's not so much diversity in terms of race and ethnicity, it's, it's diversity in terms of socioeconomic background. Well, the research shows us that socioeconomic background still doesn't have um, as much to do with, with this issue as maybe we previously thought. And the facts are, the facts are definitely there. Your work matters, and for patients and for us, I'm, I'm glad you're in the seat you're in. One of the things, we've talked about data and how important data is to drive where the direction of the work is. I also know, especially with patient experience, patient stories are also a motivator that you can then back up with that data to create that burning platform. Um, from a diversity and inclusion perspective, do you have a story or a moment you can share with us from your own experiences that exemplifies either the need for inclusion or, or shows how inclusion can be done really well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I first joined Cleveland Clinic, um, I remember being told when caregivers join us, they're like family. They are our family. And I was not here for six months when I really experienced the full impact of that. Um, my brother-in-law was admitted um, to the hospital in Canton, Ohio, and really had some pre-existing issues and needed to have care um, and resources that are part of our main campus. 
And when I asked one of the physicians, who is also a colleague, you know, what should I do? She really just jumped into motion around, okay, let me know what you need. Um, if we need to get your brother-in-law transferred here, we will do that. And just the, the swiftness with which she really leapt to my side and aligned with the situation and what, not just what I was feeling, but what my brother-in-law might have been feeling. And, you know, literally, you know, he came here, he had the surgery on the main campus, and they literally saved his life. And people can say your family but it's when you truly experience the behaviors that show you, that make you feel, yeah, you know what? This is what family would do. It wasn't a clinical discussion, by the way, when I asked for help. It came from a true feeling of, you know, I care about you. I care about you as if you are my family and we will do everything we can in our power at Cleveland Clinic to make sure that your loved one is okay. I, I will always remember that. My brother-in-law still talks about it to this day. Um, and I think that's what matters most, the fact that he had an exceptional patient experience here at Cleveland Clinic, um, and he's doing well. I saw him not too long ago. I saw him about a month ago, and he looks great. He's doing well. And yeah, it matters. And it really brings to life that statement of, we treat our caregivers like family. I can certainly say that I experienced that. I think my hope and my vision is that all of our caregivers feel that way and that all of our patients feel that way. That's the vision. The vision for diversity, equity, and inclusion is Cleveland Clinic is a place for a person like me. And I'm hoping that that vision will resonate with caregivers throughout the organization, regardless of their level regardless of whether they're entry level, regardless of whether or not uh, they're in the highest levels of leadership. We want our caregivers to feel that Cleveland Clinic is a place for a person like them. That's a great story. I, I do love that our, our CEO even sees access and, and getting people in is a moral imperative. We need to see more people and make room for people like me. Is there anything I didn't ask you or anything you, you want to make sure that we hit on before we close today? One of the things I'm very proud of is our DIRECT Council. Um, DIRECT is an acronym, Diversity, Inclusion, Racial Equity Council. And it's a council whose members were handpicked by Drs. Kelly Hancock and Dr. Barry Ridgway. And we expanded the council to include global representation this past year. So we have representation now from London, from Abu Dhabi, and from Canada, and they are working on health equity initiatives that matter. And, you know, everything from how we're serving our community to making sure that we have in my language communications, in my language signage um, throughout the enterprise. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of the work that they are doing, and I would be remiss if I didn't pointed out. I'm also very proud of the business employee resource groups. We have nine of those and the work that they're doing. And one of the things we want to do more of is align them more to the business and more to the, the strategy of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And why do I say that? Because they're doing great work. And research shows you that people who are part of employee resource groups are 10% more engaged than people who are not. 
And so I am really looking forward to the partnership with our business employee resource groups to elevate them in a way that matters and shows the impact that they are actually having on this organization. The other thing that we are working on is um, standing up regional diversity councils where they don't exist and, and enhancing and supporting the ones that do exist. And why is that important? When you think about the diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, it's enterprise-wide, but it's locally relevant. And people, I believe, are more engaged when they can work on issues that are locally relevant um, to, to them. And so how those initiatives might be carried out in Florida will be different from those and how they're carried out in Ohio or Ohio versus London, and that's okay. But we're working to, to help support those regional diversity councils, align them with our strategy, make sure that they're the arms and the legs of the direct council that I mentioned earlier, and also to make sure that they're aligned around the four core pillars of the diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, which are health equity, um, cultural competence, which we are now rebranding to cultural humility, um, recruitment and retention, and community engagement. So I'd be remiss if I didn't speak of the work, the great work um, that those entities are doing. I'm very proud of them and, and just really proud to, to be their partner in this journey. And what a great example of how you're including voices or caregivers into the work directly. So even the leader of our inclusion strategy has shown some examples of how we can include others. That's a great way to end. Hey, thank you for joining, not just today, but thanks for joining the Cleveland Clinic. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm grateful to be here. This concludes the Studies and Empathy podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, my.clevelandclinic.org forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the Studies and Empathy podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.